morning, everyone. So you know Jesus is coming back. And when he does, there will be no secrets. There will be no hiding. The darkness that we so often retreat to will not be available as a refuge. The truth will fully and finally come to light for all of us. Who you were and are will be seen without any shading, any spin, any subterfuge. And the king and the judge will say one of two things to you. Depart from me. I never knew you. Or, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I know this is heavy, but it's true. It's long stuck with me, this, the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in an essay called The Weight of Glory. He says, in the end, the face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. So if you're not uncomfortable yet, that's not my main goal this morning, but let me add to it a key passage. So we're walking through the Gospel of Mark in this series, King and Cross, the identity and the mission, the purpose of Jesus. And the pivot point is back in chapter 8, when Jesus asks the disciples first, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses that he's the Christ. And so then Jesus calls the crowd to him with the disciples and says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And then these words, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Has that verse ever scared you? At least sobered you, probably all of us would say that. Anyone ever been ashamed and denied the name of Jesus rather than denying yourself and testifying to Jesus? I'm guilty. So what do you do about that? In light of verse 38. I mean, God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not this senile grandpa in the sky winking at us when we sin and, you know, leaving the back door of heaven unlocked. 
So I want to propose that the resources we need in the face of these sobering and perhaps even terrifying at times realities are found in our passage this morning. So we ended last week in verse 52 where Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to pick up the passage that um, Chris read for us, verse 53 to the end of chapter 14 this morning. The passage is fairly uh, straightforward. So Judas has just betrayed Jesus. All the disciples have scattered except for Peter who follows at a distance. And then this unjust kind of secret trial begins under cover of darkness at the house of the high priest. And then Peter denies Jesus three times. There you go. There's the passage. But so what? What does it all mean? Okay, so let's dive in and see. First point, Cho trial and false witness. So as we're reading through these verses, verses 53 to, I think we're going to go down to 63, um, notice how many times the word for witness or testimony come up. It's actually seven times between verses 55 and 63. So that's actually an important theme to see it repeated that many times is supposed to get your attention. Um, It's the same Greek word underneath, but sometimes it's translated witness, sometimes testimony. All right, so verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Those three groups make up the Sanhedrin, right? That's the highest Jewish court of law. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council... So Sanhedrin were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Wait a minute. Anybody kind of thrown off by that, like, false witness? But didn't he say that? He did say that, right? Except for one little detail. Anybody catch it? So he does predict that, you know, the destruction of the temple, it's John 2, you can look it up later, verses 19 and 20. He certainly plans to replace the temple. Remember, he cleansed the temple. He's going to replace the temple. Um, We talked about that earlier, chapter 11 of Mark. But he never claimed that he would destroy it. He says, destroy this temple, and in three, three days, I will rebuild it. In other words, I'm going to die. You're going to destroy, you know, this body in a sense, but I'm going to raise it up in three days, and Jesus is going to be the place where people meet with God. That's what the temple was for. How can guilty, sinful people meet with God? A place of atonement is necessary. Well, Jesus is the true temple, and he's going to be the place where we can meet with God and have our sins atoned for, right? So in that sense, he never said, I will destroy this temple. Anyway, their testimony didn't agree, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer, which is intended to recall Isaiah 53. 53.7 probably familiar with these verses maybe. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
He is the Lamb of God, sacrificed in our place to take away our sin. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the blessed? Blessed being shorthand, kind of reverent shorthand for the blessed God, the blessed one. So this is basically a show trial. You know what a show trial is? Like it's a public trial in which the authorities, these judicial authorities, have already determined the guilt or the innocence of a defendant, but the actual trial itself is, you know, the only goal of it is to, um, you got to go through the motions to reach your predetermined end. So this trial isn't, isn't conducted publicly, so it's not a show trial in that sense, but it wasn't a fair trial. It was merely for show, kind of going through the motions, merely a formality in order to get to the predetermined judgment that they were seeking. So a lot of things that are kind of out of the norm here. The house of the high priest was not usually the normal location for these kinds of trials. Um, It seems clear, obviously, that they're just seeking to expedite the execution of Jesus and they're trying to keep it on the down low so they can get it done before it attracts too much attention because the crowds, you know, were positive about Jesus and they didn't want, uh, you know, revolt. Ironically, these religious leaders were the ones who were so concerned about the law of God. And in the way that they handled this trial, they violated the law of God in numerous ways as they went about condemning Jesus. So Jewish law required the testimony of at least two witnesses to corroborate. You can read about that in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 17 and 19. So as such, the fact that the testimony of these witnesses didn't agree was actually a real problem. They should have like paused the proceedings. So the the high priest kind of in frustration then steps up and tries to handle things, right? Also, according to the Mishnah, their oral law tradition that was supplemental to the Torah, you know, a certain number of the Sanhedrin had to be there for capital cases, and a guilty verdict would require a second sitting the following day. And both sittings were supposed to be held in the daytime, not under cover of night. So... They're breaking the law because they're so concerned about the law. It's ironic. The irony is actually thick in other ways. Here, the teachers of the law who seek to condemn Jesus on the basis of the law seek testimony against him, false testimony, which is breaking the ninth commandment, right? Shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Here, the guardians of the law break the law, and Jesus, the supposed lawbreaker, upholds the law. It's ironic. The high priest, this is more irony, makes a clear confession even though he doesn't believe it. He gives testimony to Jesus' identity. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? In fact, if you think back over the Gospel of Mark, some of the clearest confessions of the identity of Jesus come from his enemies. The demons and those who were trying to kill him. James Edwards summarizes it well. He says, Mark's trial scene is profoundly ironic. The Sanhedrin stand on the law, and Jesus sits in the dock on trial. This is not the boat dock. This is the courtroom dock, right? 
But in reality, the Sanhedrin breaks the law and Jesus upholds it. The testimony that the Sanhedrin seeks against Jesus is in the end not provided by the false witnesses, but by Jesus himself in the claim to be God's son. Jesus stands on trial before the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin will stand trial before the Son of Man when he returns in glory. The Sanhedrin makes a charade of Jesus' ability to prophesy, but his prophecies all come true. Above all, it is the high priest, not Jesus, who blasphemes because Jesus is God's son. So not only did Jesus' prophecies come true of his mistreatment and condemnation and obviously his death and so forth by the council and then Pilate, but also his prophecy about Peter. Peter denying him also came true because Jesus is the faithful and true witness. So testimony, witness, these, this language is front and center. And what we're supposed to see is all the false witnesses and then the true testimony of the true and faithful witness. So verse 61, point number two, the faithful and true witness. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And in keeping with what they believed about him to be a imposter Messiah, they act out on that belief and some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy, just mocking him. And the guards received him with blows. So blasphemy, among the Jews meant the death penalty. Leviticus 24, 16. Blasphemy was ascribing God's honor to yourself or putting yourself on par with God. William Lane puts it like this. Judaism expected the Messiah to provide proof of his identity. A Messiah imprisoned, abandoned by his followers, and delivered helpless into the hands of his foes represented an impossible conception. Anyone who in such circumstances proclaimed himself to be the Messiah could not fail to be a blasphemer who dared to make a mockery of the promise given by God to his people. Once Jesus was condemned, it was necessary for the council to show that it could not condone his apparently abhorrent behavior. This was accomplished through the spitting and the administering of blows, which were conventional gestures of rejection and repudiation. So Jesus says very little, but he stands firm and tells the truth in the face of his enemies and in the face of death, which is the exact opposite of Peter. Point number three, denial. Verse 54, we see first Peter followed Jesus at a distance, kind of a safe distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Look down now at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, 
one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, you can imagine it's dark, but here's the fire. And as the flames flicker, you can see the faces by the light of the fire. And she looks at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, which probably would have negative connotations, kind of a term of contempt. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And then seeking to be inconspicuous, he kind of moved places, hoping that would get him out of the spotlight. And he went away. He went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. This girl's like a little human living, or a human guilty conscience kind of following around. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. His accent would have given him away. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So Peter denies Jesus three times, and these denials get progressively stronger. So the servant girl first identifies him in verse 67. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. He denies it and, say, and says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. So Peter uses two knowledge words. The first usually points to kind of theoretical knowledge and the second practical knowledge. The point of that is this is like a total denial. He's using language actually that was formally used for denials in a legal context. For instance, if one man is accusing another man of stealing his ox, let's say, he might ask that neighbor in front of the judge, where is my ox? Did you steal it? And if the neighbor, you know, he, he may reply with, I do not know what you're talking about. I know nothing of what you're talking about. It was a way to fully deny that accusation. So obviously that denial is bad enough, but look now at the third denial, verse 70. After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them for you're a Galilean, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. I don't think this has ever sunk in as heavy as it did this time in studying this. Peter invoked a curse on himself. The verb there, anathematizane. Anybody catch a, a word we have in English from that? Anathema. Paul uses that word in Galatians 1, uses it a couple times in verses 8 and 9, saying that if anyone preaches a false gospel to the Galatians to lead them astray from the true gospel from Jesus, let him be accursed, anathema. Or in a very real and serious sense, Paul is saying to hell with such a one. So, whoa, what is Peter saying here? There's actually two possibilities because 
invoking a curse on himself. The translators are supplying the on himself. There's two options here. One is actually quite possible that Peter wasn't invoking a curse on himself. He was anathematizing Jesus. So it's quite possible that he was saying, on the one hand, may God damn me if I'm not telling you the truth. Or he's saying, to hell with that man. I don't know who he is. Either one. Whoa. And then he swears, taking an oath, not, prof- not uh, vulgarity, this is taking an oath that he's telling the truth. He's likely actually calling on God's name to do it. God is my witness. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And he refers to him as this man. He doesn't even say his name. This is the one that Peter previously hailed as the Messiah. The one to whom he so confidently claimed earlier that night that he would not deny but would lay down his life for. And he dismissively calls him this man. So Peter says to these bystanders, may I be cursed if I'm lying. And also, by implication, may you be cursed if you refuse to believe me and insist on associating me with this man. In other words, lay off. You see how seriously I'm taking this? And then the rooster crows. There is, therefore, now total condemnation for those who are in Adam. And there is therefore now no hope for those who deny Jesus. I mean, imagine the depth, depths of shame. Like Peter weeps, but he still has no idea what's going on. He's totally failed. And then Jesus is going to be killed. Like total confusion, total shame, total despair. When the heat was turned up, he was weak and a heartless coward and a traitor wretchedly, wickedly pragmatic to save his skin. He didn't deny himself and take up his cross to follow Jesus. He saved his life. For me, in my words, nope. He repudiated both. This man, he calls him this man, this man who had done him nothing but good. This man who had blown his mind with miraculous signs. This man who had melted his heart with his graciousness and mercy. Do you remember that time when, when Peter, they'd been up all night fishing, you know, and he's a fisherman. He knows what he's doing. He knows his trade. And they caught nothing. And Jesus says, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And you can imagine Peter just rolling his eyes like, you know what? Can you leave the fishing to us? We know fishing. You know the Torah. Okay, we'll trust you there. Stay in your lane. But because you said so, they throw it over. I mean, come on, there's nothing out here. And they can't even lift the the net. And what does he do? He just goes, oh, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. 
Like here, Peter is just kind of telling Jesus to shove off and Jesus breaks him with grace. This man. This man had opened his eyes to begin to see the nature of the kingdom of God. This man had healed his mother-in-law of a fever. This man had been transfigured before his very eyes. And then he denies him three times and dismissively refers to him as this man. I mean, this is sobering. It is sad. It's shocking. But we have to finally get to, so what? Like, what to make of this? What does it mean for us? So point number four, witness the shocking surprise. So what is this shocking surprise that we're supposed to witness here in this passage? Well, shock number one, there's multiple shocking things here. First one, look at verse 61. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. Just like blessed is shorthand, like reverential shorthand, because they didn't want to speak the name of God out of reverence for God. So also power is shorthand for the omnipotent one. So he's speaking of God's right hand, the place of highest honor. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus claims to be the judge of all the earth. At the right hand of power, God's right hand, coming with the clouds. In the Old Testament, that's reserved for God himself. So it is shocking that Jesus uses this language and applies it to himself. And it's craziness to think he's saying that in this context when he's on trial and seemingly powerless and a, and a failed leader. But that's not all that's shocking. So this language is directly calling up Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days. That's the name given to God there in Daniel 7. He sees him come into view in his sovereign kingship. And in verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. That's a million. And 10,000 times 10,000, that's 100 million, stood before him. The court sat in judgment. Imagine this vision, this picture of actually seeing the king of kings in all of his glory. How awesome that would be. The court sat in judgment. The books were open. And in the context of Daniel 7, the dominion of all the kingdoms of the world, especially in recent centuries, ending with Rome, was all taken away. And then Daniel sees something else. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Remember, the Son of Man is going to come with the clouds. There came one like a son of man. That's the title Jesus uses in Mark 14. 
and was presented before the Ancient of Days. And to him, this son of man, one like a son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So it is shocking that this betrayed, arrested, abandoned teacher, carpenter turned teacher, living under the cloud of illegitimacy for his whole life, is claiming such crazy things. He's claiming to be the son of man prophesied in Daniel 7, the one to whom everlasting dominion is given and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. But there's something else that's shocking. Why is that kingdom given to the Son of Man in Daniel 7? It's given to him that everybody should serve him. Hmm. Do you remember back in Mark a key place in Mark where the title Son of Man is used alongside the idea of service, serving. Talking about kingdoms, right? And Jesus is bringing his kingdom and it's very different from the kingdoms of this world. And in Mark 10, he had to tell his disciples, you know, those that are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you if you're gonna follow me. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for even the son of man came not to be served. What? But to serve? and to give his life as a ransom for many? Like, so there's a lot of things that were surprising about Jesus when he came, but his mission not to be served, but to serve and give his life was certainly one of the central things. I mean, if he was coming to be served, like what a failed mission that would be. He dies alone, having had all of his disciples abandon him, one betrayed him to death, one of his closest vehemently denied that he even knew him and called down a curse. Good thing he didn't come to be served because his mission would have been an utter failure, but that wasn't his mission. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and that he did, and marvelously so. So listen, think of the denial language that we see in this passage here. Look at verse 68, verse 70, and the worst denial in verse 71. Even though it's not used there explicitly, obviously he denies Jesus the third time when he calls down the curse. And then verse 72, Peter remembers what Jesus said, and you see the denial language used again. Peter was full of self-confidence, even bravado when Jesus announced that all the disciples would abandon him. And he said, I will not. Back in 1429, and Jesus said, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. The denial word again. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Denial is serious business, right? Remember Mark 8? Jesus had said, I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter said, no, you're not. 
He rebukes Jesus, and Jesus had to rebuke him. And then he says, if anyone wants to follow me, you must deny yourself. You're not the Lord. You're not in charge. You die to your sin. You die to yourself, you know, being in control. And you follow me. And then whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, simple generation of him, the son of man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So Peter didn't deny himself and follow Jesus in the courtyard. He denied Jesus. He was ashamed of being associated with him. He was afraid of the consequences of associating with him. It was all to save his skin. I mean, Mark's not the only place that talks about how serious denial is. Matthew chapter 10 Everyone who acknowledges me before men, this is Jesus speaking, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. Like, do you see? Like, we need to hit this head on and face it. It's serious stuff. Well, where does that leave Peter? Where does that leave us? Well, if the Son of God, the Son of Man, came only to be served, Peter has failed and he is toast. He has failed to deny himself. He has denied the Son of Man, and vehemently so. And so the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes. The end. And we're all toast, too. Remember, in the end, the face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. Every single one of us in this room, on this planet, who has ever lived, will one day hear either depart from me, I never knew you, or well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And we have all been false witnesses, failed witnesses. All right, let's pull this all together now. Who is the true and faithful witness, okay? It is Jesus. In fact, that's his name in Revelation 3.14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Can you trust him? His every word proved true. He told us what he was going to do before he did it. What would happen to him before it came to pass? He always told the truth, regardless of the consequences, even in the face of death. Us, on the other hand, like Peter, have we been perfectly true and faithful witnesses? I mean, what do we do with all of our cowardice, all of our denials and our shame and our guilt? Well, look at the arc of Peter's life. All of this heaviness and guilt doesn't, like we're not just gonna be ground down in the carpet and then, you know, have a great lunch. Thankfully, it doesn't end there. Bravado, wicked failure. He even called a curse down on himself. What if God held him to that oath? He deserves to be held to that oath. What, what did God do? He held Jesus to it. Jesus was held to that cross by nails to be sure, but it was Peter's infidelity and denial and cowardice and ours that he died for, that he 
hung on the cross to bear. We deserve to have to answer for our cosmic treason and denials and falseness and hypocrisy from fear and selfishness and shame trying to save our lives. But in our place condemned, he stood. Behold the faithful and true witness. So in Gethsemane, Jesus is vigilant and he is prayerful. His disciples are prayerless and sleepy. Here at the house of the high priest, Jesus is faithful and bold. I am. And the tables are going to be turned, just so that you know. Peter is denying and unfaithful. Again, all right, why, so what? We're getting there, right? We're getting there. Do you know who the source of Mark's account is? Peter. The apostolic source for Mark writing this gospel is Peter. So in other words, he endorsed the inclusion of all these wretched failures in, his, in, in Mark's gospel account. Mark would have heard from Peter himself what he said in that courtyard, what he did in that courtyard of the high priest. What does that mean? You with me? What does that mean? It means that Christianity is not about maintaining an impressive religious image. It's not about keeping up appearances. It is about good news for bad people like you and me. It's about the faithful and true witness who told us the truth about God and about ourselves. Like the gospel is about the one who was faithful and true when every man is a liar. It's about the one who was faithful and victorious when we all had failed. Adam and Eve in the garden, Israel in the wilderness, you know, on and on and on. Failed king, imperfect king. We need a king. Where's the everlasting king? It's about the one who was condemned. He took our anathema. We deserve to hear from the judge of all the earth to hell with you. Literally. Our condemnation for all of our damnable, I say that in its truest sense, damnable unfaithfulness and lies and falseness and hypocrisy and denials. Aren't you glad? I say this again carefully. Aren't you glad that Peter denied Jesus? In a sense, like what hope there is in this. He was restored. Imagine if this wasn't in the Bible. What? Here's the question. What is God trying to tell us that he intended for this to be in our Bible? Perhaps this. If you and I are going to be faithful witnesses, we need to see the faithful and true witness standing firm where we've fallen, victorious where we've failed, forgiving all of our falseness and hypocrisy and shame and fear and denials so that the one that we boldly proclaim and testify to 
is the merciful and gracious Savior who died to give us sinful cowards good news to speak of, good news to witness, good news to testify of. So make no mistake, God intends us to be faithful witnesses. But like until we know our failure, we're not going to be thrilled with our deliverance. And if we're not thrilled with our deliverance, we're going to be silent. We have so much grace that we've been witnesses of. We have so much grace to testify to. Like, I, I love that we sung, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. Where is it? The lyrics are here somewhere. Here we go. This is it here. We sung, Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. Like, I wouldn't even be here in the first place had it not been for your grace. And I want to be a faithful witness. And I know that my will is fugitive and I will deny you. I will shrink back in shame. I will be silent when I should speak if I don't have your grace and your strength. Make me thine forever. If I should be fainting, don't ever let me outlive my love to thee. Like that's the heart of a Witness who knows our proneness to wander, but also knows the heart of the Savior. So we are his witnesses. And we actually need to see, like feel the heaviness, feel the weight of it, see our failure. And then, oh my goodness, the grace of this Savior will thrill us so that we want to sing a new song of deliverance. We want to testify. We don't want to stay silent because we've, we want to witness because we've witnessed such good grace and mercy, so many good things at the hands of our gracious Savior. One final application point here What's, what's the application thus far? <laughs> um, to really see reality, right? To see our need and to see Jesus' mercy and grace and actually believe it. Um, certainly those things. But there's also some application here to connect the lesson of the Garden of Gethsemane to this failure in the courtyard. So watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Because we want to be faithful witnesses. If you're in Christ, like, don't you want to be a faithful witness? Don't you hate the ways in which you've shrunk back and denied or been silent in the past? There's grace for that, right? We just saw that clearly. But watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Peter fell asleep and then he fell into temptation. Jesus prayed to the Father and then he stood and was the faithful and true witness even in the face of death. And then think about the arc, again, of Peter's life and the disciples after the resurrection. Empowered by the Spirit, as the Spirit falls on them at Pentecost, 
Peter and the other disciples were strengthened to be bold and faithful witnesses. And they prayed. You see this pattern in the book of Acts. They pray. They devote themselves to prayer. And they are unleashed with boldness to speak of what they've seen and heard. They witness because of the power of what they've witnessed. And it comes through prayer. They are guarded from temptation and they are empowered for faithful witness to testify to their great and gracious Savior, even in the face of death in Acts, right? Getting beat up. Stephen, before this, you know, bloodthirsty crowd, they stone him to death, but he is the faithful and true witness in reflection of his Savior right to the end. So may we go and do likewise. This is a call to be faithful witnesses, but only first recognizing how terribly desperate we are for Jesus to die for us, to be condemned for us, and pay for all of that denial and shame and saving my life stuff in the past, in the present, in the future. And then we get happy in Jesus because of his mercy and grace, and we testify to that grace as we depend on him, depend on him, depend on him day after day. I want to be faithful to you. I don't want to shrink back in shame today. Help me, Lord. I wake up in the morning. I want to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. I don't want to try to save my life. I don't want to be ashamed of you. Strengthen me. Help me. I don't want to fall into temptation. I want to follow you, the faithful and true witness, so I can be a faithful and true witness. We're going to sing a couple songs that are fitting in conclusion. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, please continue to thrill us. Don't ever let us get over the amazing grace of the gospel. Keep blowing us away and thrilling us and overwhelming us and humbling us and filling us with thanksgiving and joy and gratitude and, and praise over your mind-boggling, heart-swelling mercy and kindness and faithfulness and grace. And I pray that we would be faithful witnesses, your salt and light, this week as we follow Jesus. In his name, amen.